Salam. Welcome to Muslim Viewpoint, a new podcast series powered by American Muslim Today, a groundbreaking nonprofit digital newspaper which champions civic engagement. AMT informs and empowers the diverse voices of almost 30 million Muslims here in the U.S. and other Western countries. I'm Maya Gaylor, and today we have an interview with Lena Barkawi, who is a Tatri's practitioner, preservationist, and now an educator based in Brooklyn. She fell into the art form by way of her Panamanian mother, delved headfirst into creating a Palestinian thobe from scratch, and now focused on helping other Palestinian women do the same. Her objective is to help fellow Palestinians reclaim Palestinian tradition, celebrate the beauty of Palestinian Tatri's, create something truly unique and beautiful, and tell their story on your throat. Tatri's is tied to Palestinian history and the ongoing fight for liberation. The history of the Israeli occupation has directly impacted how Tatri's is practiced, and she is drawn to returning back to indigenous practices as her own way of supporting Palestinian liberation. She spoke to our reporter, Meher Jan. Yeah, absolutely. So, alaikum assalam. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, and anyone who wants to talk to me about Tatri's, I will make the time because it is my number one uh, passion right now. Um, so Tatriz is the Arabic word technically for embroidery. Um, but a lot of people, when they hear the word Tatriz, they actually associate it specifically with Palestinian embroidery. And the reason for that is because Palestinian embroidery is quite unique um, compared to other forms of embroidery because we have massive library um, that is known as being part of the Palestinian embroidery space um, that has documented for uh, the last, you know, over the last hundred years or so, the the different motifs that Palestinians use in their embroidery. And so um, when you think about looking at Palestinian embroidery, it, it looks very similar. You can kind of identify uh, Palestinian embroidery from other forms of embroidery. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the reason the word Tatriz has been uh, specifically linked to um, Palestinian embroidery as opposed to other forms. All right, okay, that sounds interesting. And um, you've talked about how this form of art is um, going to help, it helps in reclaiming the Palestinian traditions. So how exactly are you focusing on that mission, that vision of yours? How, how is it going about? Absolutely. So um, I guess the, to wait, the way I can best answer that is actually to take us a little bit back in time. So I did some research around Palestinian embroidery and looked over the past hundred or so years in, in terms of how it is practiced and how it is used. And when you go back to before the Nakba, so before 1948, when Palestinians were living in their their original villages, the way that Tatriz was practiced was very much uh, by the women in those villages, and it was done for themselves. So this wasn't something that was really popular to sell, for example. Um, And this was also before um, the popular use of machine embroidery as well. And so pre-1948, the Palestinian tradition of embroidery was to do it by hand and for yourself. And so um, that was 
in my personal opinion, that was stripped away due to the Nakba. So when the Nakba happened, um, all of these Palestinians were forcibly displaced. Um, and you found we found that there were a lot of women who were looking for ways to um, provide for their families. And they had been stripped from their land, which had been, you know, a lot of times where they were finding their, their I guess, quote unquote, income, not necessarily in the same way that we think about income today, but that was how they were making things. Uh, work for their families. That was how they were feeding their families. And so when they were removed from their land, you saw that they were looking for alternative ways to support their families uh, while being a refugee. And they turned to embroidery because that was a skill that they had and it was something that people were willing to pay for. And so you saw this transition from in the Palestinian embroidery being something that was done for yourself and in your free time and as a reflection of your own identity to being something that you um, um, offered as a product and that was paid for and introduced basically capitalism into the Totri's world. Um, and so you saw this shift happen. And then over time, you know, people began to learn that the Palestinian embroidery by hand is takes a very long time. It's meant to be a slow process. And in order to meet the demand of people and get them Palestinian embroidery as quickly as possible, you see this emergence of more machine-made embroidery mm -hmm. um, to help people have access to this art form in a faster and cheaper way. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as I'm, you know, I'm someone who has practiced embroidery since I was young, like I was young, I was maybe 12 or so when my mother taught me. Um, my mother, who was not Palestinian, actually, she taught me how to embroider. And I didn't make the connection that there was this really um, rich embroidery practice as part of my other side of my heritage until a few years ago. Um, and so that's when I started diving really deep. And so I already had kind of this, um uh, what is the word I'm looking for? I, I had this I had this understanding of why it's important to do hand embroidery because I had already been doing it. It was something that I valued. And so uh I went into this research as someone who values hand embroidery and then learning all of this made me very uh, upset, I guess, in a way, and, and very frustrated that this isn't something that everyone knows about. Because if Palestinians knew about this, if they knew about how unique their Palestinian embroidery traditions are, you know, why wouldn't they want to pick up a needle and start doing it themselves again for themselves, not because they want to sell it. And so that was when I started kind of my, my journey has evolved, you know, over the years. And now my focus is to help basically other Palestinians in the diaspora who have been disconnected from their heritage in some form, uh, in some way, get reconnected through the tool of Palestinian embroidery, because it is something that is so rooted in our heritage, our culture, our traditions, but also our connections to the land and our connections to each other as fellow Palestinians. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where, that's kind of how everything kind of evolves. But that's, a, I guess, to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does beautifully. It does. Um, let's just talk about Alcrisi. You, um, as you said, you started um, embroidery and from a very young age, and then of course you didn't keep the craft to yourself, and you wanted to share it to the community. So, um, looking at the kind of strong community that you've already built in Brooklyn, I mean, from from the time that you started till now, are you happy and satisfied with the kind of awareness you have been able to create? Well, so I would say community actually for me has been built uh, more, not necessarily locally specific to Brooklyn. So 
I feel like there's like a whole other conversation that we can go into, whereas, you know, a lot of this also emerged during uh, COVID. So before mm -hmm. COVID, not many people were like, I wasn't personally super aware of, of Tatriz. It wasn't something that I saw on social media. Maybe I wasn't looking for it, but it wasn't something that I noticed. And COVID, I think, enabled a lot of people to get curious about Tatriz because wow. it's something that you can do at home. It doesn't require you to be amongst other people. And it still kind of offers you this way to connect uh, virtually. And so I feel like COVID actually helped build that community for me, um, like me as a member, and then me also as someone who is hopefully nurturing uh, a, a bigger, broader Tatris type of community. Um, and so we used to start meeting, like we started, I started like noticing people having Instagram accounts. And that was, I think when I created my own Instagram account that was dedicated to Tatris, um, was during COVID. And so as we started finding each other online, we would connect virtually and all of us are not in Brooklyn. That's like just, I was just very fortunate to have a couple of women who were kind of close by one was in New Jersey one is in Connecticut and mm -hmm. so we would meet every once in a while but ultimately we were connecting with people all over the world so I have Patrice sisters if you will mm -hmm. in California in Australia in Norway and so many places in the world and the Middle East of course yeah. um, so that's been kind of the community that has been built and I think you know, it just goes to show the nature of the Palestinian experience in that, just in looking at that, you know, we have been dispersed all over the world. Um, the diaspora is a result of, you know, a 75 plus year occupation. It's a result of the ongoing genocide. And so you can yeah. see that very clearly in just looking at this small subset of Palestinians. And that's kind of how the community has, um, has that's where it's come from. And that's how it's kind of continuing to be built is by making connections, uh, virtually great great i uh, really think it is um you know making a huge difference um i've been going through your um, instagram account and of course i went through your uh, podcast account as well and you're the uh, co-host of a podcast by the name Tatris talks so mm -hmm. if you could uh, lena enlighten us uh, on that what exactly do you guys talk about what kind of topics do you cover Yes, absolutely. So Tatri's Talk is a new baby of ours. We actually just launched this year in 2024. Um, so I am co-hosting alongside one of my really good Tatri's friends. Her name is Amani. Uh, she's based in California and she runs a company called Min Amani Designs. Uh, she has fantastic designs and kits in case anyone is interested in knowing, learning more. Um, and she, you know, we came up, actually she came up with the idea and she reached out to me and she's like, hey, what do you think about doing a podcast on Tatri's? And mm -hmm. I would like, tell me more, uh, you know, an excuse to talk about Tatris, mm -hmm. really. And honestly, that was kind of what it started off as. It was this idea that we just wanted to basically document these incredible and what we consider to be very magical conversations. Um, and it also just enables us to meet more Palestinian Tatris artists around the world and learn more about how they are practicing, how they are embedding it into their own arts, into their own forms of communications. Um, and that's kind of what it's become. And then the other aspect of that that I was thinking about when she messaged me and as she started describing to me her vision of, of Tatri's talk, you know, the things that the thing that came up to my mind was like, how cool would it be um, to have something that has a Palestinian voice, a Palestinian narrative that you can listen to while you're stitching? Um, and so that was kind of the other piece of it that I was really fascinated by was, you know, I, I typically will listen to audiobooks or um, podcasts as I'm doing my stitching. And, 
you know, I haven't heard a Palestinian voice in, in those scenarios. And so this was kind of an opportunity to not only talk to just really incredible artists and people who are doing really fascinating things with Tatris, but it's also a way for us to help um, help someone else continue their practice of Tatris. Like if they can dedicate 45 minutes or so each week to their Tatris practice, those projects are just going to be incredibly, just incredible. We'll see a, a huge, like, you know, like, uh, I guess, view of so many different art and so many different projects that we wouldn't have otherwise if they didn't have that opportunity, that excuse to spend some time stitching. Um, so we we interview, like I said, Tatris artists. We mm -hmm. also just interview your average person who's just doing Tatris for themselves. So we have some, um, they, they are artists in their own rights, but they're maybe not necessarily with a huge public presence. So, you know, people who are just creating their first, their thought for their upcoming wedding, you know, that's going to be an interview, that's going to be a podcast interview that we have coming uh, soon. Um, someone who just loves giving Tatris gifts um, as well. So how to like talking to her about, you know, who does she give who does she gift to and how does she design with that person in mind and put so much love and time and energy into this project that that person will then remember for a very long time. So these are the types of individuals that we want to, you know, have on the podcast and we're, just, we're super excited. It's been such a wonderful, um, I guess, launch, if you will. We've had five episodes. The sixth one is coming up this, this week. And um, every conversation just gives me in particular, I know Amani feels the same way, but it just gives us so much joy. Uh, and li like listening to the podcast again later is just like, oh my God, I love this art so much. <laughs> Definitely. Mm -hmm. That is beautiful, Lena. That is. Um, okay, just one more thing. We were talking about how this um, art form is obviously playing a huge role in bringing Palestinians um, around the world together, um, you know, to be able to communicate, to be able to remain, um, you know, endorsed in your roots and to be able to appreciate it. But if you look at it from another person, um, you know, a perspective that if you want to create a larger kind of uh, emphasis and want people from different backgrounds to be able to understand the plight of Palestinians, do you think that is something that your, um, you know, talk show or your podcast or even just your, um, you know, Instagram channel is, is do you think it's going to be able to achieve that to be able to create, mis um, you know, clear misconceptions and be able to make everyone from different backgrounds understand what exactly is happening in Palestine is not something just that just happened right now. And as you yeah. said, you know, it's like uh, decades of history there. Do you feel like that you would be able to create that kind of a platform anytime soon when everyone from around the world is going to sit and listen and be able to understand through creativity, through art? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had people already message me like saying, wow, I did not know that this type of experience even existed, you know, just because they have like, like right now, I would say probably a lot of our listeners are either people who are familiar with Palestine, Palestinians themselves, mm -hmm. of course or people who really value embroidery. And a lot of these people who embroider are really, really curious about this beautiful form that they had no idea existed. Like I think nowadays globally, a lot of people in the embroidery space they recognize Ukrainian embroidery. And so when things happened in Ukraine and Russia, that was a really big conversation that people were having in the embroidery space. And it made a lot of the people who, who work with embroidery feel yeah. empathy towards Ukrainians. And so now it's like, you know, when we think about the Palestinian embroidery, a lot of people don't know that it exists. It's not something that is mainstream. It is not something that people really understand about. And it's also 
not it's also different from Ukrainian embroidery in that it's not just a uh, identifiable type of embroidery something that you can recognize as being Ukrainian mm -hmm. it has it has an, a history that is really really rooted in this fight for liberation in this fight for freedom and justice in Palestine because if you look at the history from a embroidery from a Pris perspective it yeah. is very much embedded and that comes out in all of the different conversations that we have so for example like a lot of the people who will come onto our our podcast they will talk about how you know they wish that their grandmother could have taught them Pris but she wasn't able to because of the occupation or um you know, you hear you hear uh, you hear about how Tatris was used as a very direct form of resistance by Palestinians in the West Bank over different aggressions that have been conducted against Palestinians by Israel. So you have like the, the history is just so, so rich uh, just from a Tatris perspective. And all of those types of stories are really hard to hear if you don't have some sort of platform to kind of take yeah. them in in a way that is, um, you know, easy to accessible, I guess, if you will. So that's what our hope is through the through the podcast. I mean, I think from like my own personal accounts perspective, um, you know, I like to share all of the different designs that I do. My designs are influenced and um, inspired by the Palestinians that I am seeing, you know, in, on the ground or in history or in my in my day to day life. And I think through that, you know, art has always, you know, art historically has always been a way of communicating past, you know, these political debates that, you know, typically only have one side of the conversation kind of present. And art is, is an ability, is a way that you can actually, you know, communicate that there is an entire other side, there is an entire people who have other lived experiences that matter in this particular debate. And so that is kind of my hope. So like my most recent design, for example, is um, it's, it's the, it's a design of a watermelon, but within the watermelon has motifs from across historic Palestine. So they're, they're one of the reasons that the motifs are so unique is that you can trace them to their original villages, which a ton of them have been erased due to um, the creation of the Israeli state. And a lot of them are currently being erased due to occupation and due to settler colonialism. And so I have I, I, I intentionally put a series of motifs that spanned across historic Palestine to really showcase that we come from all of these different villages and they all matter. And the idea that they're in this watermelon, you know, shape is this idea that, you know, we are not free until we are all free. So this watermelon for me, and it has been something that has come out of the Palestinian resistance movement for the last few decades, is mm -hmm. a and symbol of liberation um, and a fight for, you know, resistance uh, against occupation. So, yeah, I mean, 100 percent, I guess, is the short answer to yeah. your question. Yeah, that was that was great. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you're describing this and it, I'm just thinking about it in my mind. OK, this is how she designed it. And as you said, motives from all these different villages representing the different sides of Palestine. Um, wouldn't it be awesome, Lena, if you guys can actually host an exhibition or, you know, an ongoing exhibition or something as such for people to actually come and see and feel the fabric and, you know, you know, just mm -hmm. be able to glimpse at all these amazing creations. So, I mean, I would definitely if if you ever do have a, an exhibition, I'm going to be flying out to be in one of these because <laughs> it, it, it definitely is going to create a lot of excitement and um, a lot of curiosity to be able to see that. So um, hands off to you guys and your community members for doing something so meaningful in such a beautiful way. Um, you know, obviously the kind of crisis we are in right now, I don't know how people even sleep 
because every day is such a hard day to wake up to with the kind of news that we have to see and um, hear. So when it comes to Gaza's plight, which is continuously worsening, um, Lena, what is that nudge of hope or, you know, a shimmer of hope that you have in you that makes you feel like if you know what, better days are coming and Palestine will be free. How do you give yourself that kind of a boost every single day to be able to get up and do what you do? Yeah. Yes. So it's a really, really good question. I mean, I think there are a few reminders that I continue to tell myself each day. One, um, you know, me as a Palestinian just existing is a form of exist is a form of resistance. So even if even if it's a, a terrible day, even if I'm not in the mood, even if I'm getting angry at every single person at work, I am still being Palestinian just by being there. And that in of itself is a form of resistance as long as I identify as Palestinian. So like, that's like the first one. Um, the second one is I remember, you know, early on in, in the aggression against Gaza, there was, there was this really beautiful, um, a very sad but very beautiful voice recording that was going viral. And it was this woman in Gaza who was talking to one of her family members who was outside of Gaza. And her family member was telling her, you know, I'm so, like, I don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know. I can't help you. Like, I want to help you. I please like, like, what can we do? Give me something that I can do. And I, you know, I, like, I, I think every God, every day that I'm not in that situation. And at the same time, my heart is breaking every single day because you're in that situation. Somebody's in that situation. And her, I think it was her grandmother. Um, this woman responded to her and she's like, you know what? I'm so sorry that you're not here. I'm so sorry that you're on the outside having to witness this. And yeah. so this, this like change in mindset, like she is thanking God that, you know, that, that she is there in, in Gaza because she can't imagine what she would do if she was outside of Gaza. Like, mm -hmm. how do you, how, what are we supposed to do witnessing? Yeah. It's the, it's the most awful feeling. That's not to say that I don't want anyone to be in any of these situations, mm -hmm. of course, yeah. but it was just like this, this, this way of thinking that was so transformative for me as someone who has you know, from a, from a mindset of someone who has lived through these aggressions year after year, like this is not the first time, as you know, and yeah. like to have this kind of thinking and to have this much faith in, in your, in your God and in, in the future yeah. and like what matters is, uh, is so, so, so powerful. Um, so that was like another thing. And then the other thing I'll just mention, cause it's, it's kind of fresh in my mind. I was listening to this podcast episode and it was featuring an indigenous person um, in Australia, actually. So she's not Palestinian at all, but they were talking about Palestine and, and how, you know, it's, it matters to every indigenous person out there. And the thing that she was talking about was, you know, one of the things that she looks to when she's losing hope or when she's feeling restless or whatever, is she just literally goes outside and witnesses nature and thinks about who actually documents everything that happens in life we as humans are so limited our life here is so limited but the trees are here that live longer than us they are the ones who are capturing everything they will see this through to a free palestine it may not be in our lifetime i hope it is because i would love to witness that but it may not be in our lifetime but it will happen because that is just that is the natural way of of life things the 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 good will always overcome at some point and so thinking about just like looking at nature and how yeah. how insignificant you know we are and I think as Muslims this is also something that we're taught as well as yeah. like remember like you are just you are nothing I mean yeah. not, I don't mean that in a bad way but like really we are so yeah, and it's a reminder you know that that 
you know, we are, we will get there as a, as a, as a world, as a dunya, it's not, maybe not in our lifetime, but we will get there. And, and that, you know, gives me some hope because all of the Palestinians who came before me have been fighting this, they have been pushing and they have been pushing and to be in a moment when I have, I still have access to all of that knowledge and I have access to all of that effort and that fight for liberation and that heart mm -hmm. and faith in, in God, like that to me is, it is, is, um, uh, is just all I need mm -hmm. to continue going because I can then put my own mark as my own individual my in my limited time on this earth. And that's all we can do. You know, at the end of the day, we are limited, we are insignificant, and we are human. So um, yeah. I think those are those are the things that I remind myself every day. Thank you for joining us this week. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at American Muslim Today. If you'd like to read more about this story and access more digital content, feel free to check out our website, AmericanMuslimToday.com. We'll see you next week on The Muslim Viewpoint.